Please welcome. Welcome to another episode of Unmet Need, hosted by serial founder, CEO, Jeff Smith. Your number one podcast for healthcare innovation. Jeff and his guests tackle the biggest problems in healthcare and share their experience building successful businesses in medical device, diagnostics, therapeutics, digital health, and so much more. This is Unmet Need, hosted by Jeff Smith. Welcome to the next episode of Unmet Need. I am your host, Jeff Smith. Today, we have Evan Ng from Dorsey, co-chair of the firm's Life Science and Healthcare Practices. Evan, welcome to Unmet Need. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So today, there's really going to be three parts. Tell us about Dorsey and your practice. Then we'll try to understand a little bit more about you, Evan Ng, the man behind the title and all the accomplishments. And then third, we're going to go to the vault. So we'll keep it moving. And with that, let's start off. What type of business is Dorsey? So we're a law firm. We are what we would call a full service law firm. We have 600 lawyers. Every legal service you can imagine for a corporation, we should be able to deliver in some shape or form. In the case of MedTech Life Science Companies, we help founders start the company we help them with financing needs, we help them with employment needs, and we take them forward. And hopefully there is an exit transaction that we also help the company with. So along the way, there are other legal needs, of course, IP, labor and employment issues, litigation, things of that nature come up. And we will provide services as people need and hope to deliver it at a, uh, an expert level that people are happy. And so if you think in your role as the co-chair of the life science practice, how is Dorsey's life science practice different than some of your partners in other sectors? And is there anything specific about life science businesses where your expertise are most important for clients? I think there are more nuances with life science businesses. The uh, first thing that comes to mind is it's a longer haul than standard.com business. So when you start, you got to think about things that are five, six, seven years ahead and median time to exit. It's just that much longer. So things that you just don't necessarily go in with the expectation of quick in and out of the business kind of approach. You're actually trying to build a business. So you do things methodically and you have to be careful about things a lot more. So as an example, people in the tech side, one bad deal, easy to recover from. On the life science side, it's much harder when you have compounding impact of something bad that happens and that goes on over time. And when the exit transaction is down the line, it's more difficult. But overall, I think it's a business where you look at uh, the creation of the company in the beginning, and you make a, a long-range plan and see if you can accomplish the outcome and help patients, even though I'm just a lawyer and I'm indirectly helping patients. Hopefully. Well, no, I think it's in your role, you have the ability to help patients at scale. And for an example, how many life science companies that have developed some type of product, service, that ultimately is targeting the patient with the goal of approving patient lives, how many companies would you say you've represented in the last 12, 15 years? Hundreds at this point. It's a lot and the workload is is high. And you can think of it almost as vintages of companies that move forward each year. Uh, and you'll have a pipeline of companies that come in and graduate, if you would, and, uh, and exit. So every year we have, you know, number of large exit transactions and new companies get started every year. So it's, it's exciting. It's fresh. It's always moving. And in this environment, actually, in particular, it's interesting because this COVID depression that we're in, I think, is a new window, a tremendous window for a lot of new companies to get started. You have a lot of people who are soon being dislocated in terms of employment and other, other issues of that sort, and then they go on to start new companies. And I think we're going to get some pretty interesting new companies out there 
because you have folks who are perhaps not traditionally in the life sciences or healthcare area maybe considering moving into the space with, say, a tech background. And that would be very interesting dynamic. And that did happen in the last recession and the recession before. So it's an exciting time. Yeah, there's a lot of great information in there. I mean, the first one I want to come back to is you talk about the COVID recession. Now, I'm curious what you mean by that. And how do you think about the COVID recession in terms of life science, your practice, and healthcare startups? So this is a interesting time, I think, with, you know, I believe we are in the middle of a correction in some fashion, whether it's significantly different from the 2008, 2009 era. I, I, you know, only we can only tell in a few months. What we're hearing with different clients and in boardrooms is, you know, the tremendous need to preserve cash. And when that happens, companies' behavior change and layoffs happen, spending cuts happen. Those are all challenging things that, you know, ripple into other aspects of the, of the economy and society. And, you know, that's that seems and feels like the, the spark of sort of in a recessionary environment. And, you know, we, we see it and we feel it, but, you know, the data is not quite there yet, but it certainly has that feeling. If we think back to the last recession in 2008, there was a seizing or an inefficiency of the capital markets. That's not what we have today. You know, we have- No. It's, it's a very different pattern. And if we look at the, you know, the major stock indices, they're all performing relatively well. I think one of the concerns that I'm certainly tracking and others as well is what does it mean when the global fiscal policy is so inflationary and governments and central banks printing money for stimulus? And outside of inflationary concerns, the next thing for me that comes up is what's going to happen when 15, 20, 30 million Americans are now unemployed, not just to the overall U.S. GDP, but more specifically to the healthcare space. And that's where I think healthcare could be better situated because of the Affordable Care Act, because stimulus that's going to help employers even continue to provide healthcare insurance for laid off people or furloughed. So while there will be fewer employed people spending on discretionary purchases, taking out loans, and using services. When it comes to healthcare, my position is that there's actually safety nets in place, whether that be for low-income people or unemployed, tired folks that are on Medicare, or the remaining workforce that still has company-sponsored health insurance. My personal view is that healthcare or products or services that are ultimately paid for by insurers whether they be government payers, commercial payers, in either case, there's still going to be a lot of patience. So the point that you made about entrepreneurs and builders that haven't historically focused their energy on healthcare, I think the combination of a lot of people that have some form of insurance, which just means that there will be payment for a product or service, coupled with the fact there's a number of enabling technologies that started outside of healthcare, for instance, video conferencing, been around for a really long time, that now based on constraints that started from COVID-19, they drove new consumer behaviors and consumers in this case being patients, one of them of course being telemedicine, something as simple as this interaction we're having, you're a highly trained professional, you're compensated for your time and giving advice and guiding people on how to manage risk, a lot of parallels to what physicians do, and so if you think about enabling technologies that have reached a critical mass where they're less expensive to deploy, widely available, uh, and oftentimes can leverage them through your mobile phone, entrepreneurs that are displaced, healthcare still has a lot of payers. Do you think that combination ends up with more healthcare startups or should, will it be something different? I do think there will be more. I think we are currently in this early phase of trying to figure out the new normal. Uh, there are a lot of unknowns. Uh, you start a company today and, you know, the traditional steps of, well, you know, having co-founders or other folks who are helping you along, it's not taking place with, you know, traditional meetings in person. Uh, you know, the brainstorming sessions are different. 
than what people are used to. Uh, that's, you know, the, just the way of working is evolving. So this initial window of getting things together and getting things going, I think is trickier, uh, or at least not what people are used to. But then once we move past this, you know, other logistical issues will come about and, and we will overcome those too. I mean, other things that, that are immediately obvious, talking to investors in this kind of environment, you know, it used to be a much more face-to-face -face arrangement. Uh, it used to be a, you know, the investor has to come see the offices to diligence uh, what's going on, um, you know, or you have a beta and you need to actually do a demo to a prospective customer. All those things are going to change. Every aspect of life is changing. Uh, but once we get past all of that, you're absolutely right. The opportunities uh, that exist, I think there are new blank spaces to go into, right? So, you know, the, the telemedicine enabled delivery of various things, you know, or, or, you know, the blending of tech technology into the healthcare system and delivery of it. Before COVID, there are so many hurdles to get anything done with this, you know, think about telemedicine. It's a, it used to be, I think, a less favored approach to delivering care, getting providers paid. Those are all gone overnight. I mean, it's, it's now a preferred approach. There, there are going to be more of these types of things. Uh, you can even imagine devices that are, you know, more connected but remote, you know, hmm. so that the patient administers those particular devices for the physician to check. You know, all those things are, are I think, much uh, better positioned as we finish through this kind of change in paradigm and change in behavior and we move to the new normal, I think there's a ton of opportunity. And I think that's where the folks who are gonna experience a change to their personal circumstance, you know, maybe considering starting uh, down a new path, they're gonna look at healthcare as a big opportunity to, to change, you know, what they used to do, deploy their, their pre previous skill set and start something new. I think there are huge opportunities, but it will take a while because everything is so different, at least in the near future. But given five, six months, I think right we turn around into 2021, there is going to be a lot of interesting and exciting things that, that will present themselves. And that's exciting because times of great change creates a number of constraints. And when there are new constraints, and particularly when the status quo has been disrupted in some way, that means the incumbents or the market leaders, the companies that have almost figured it out, they're on their heels because the rules of engagement have somehow changed, whether it be through access to the hospital or how one is interacting with the patient, even including things like regulation. And so as all these things change, you take a system that was in equilibrium, everything gets thrown upside down, and it's a perfect environment for a new company to come in that's not always tackling the same or a different problem, but the solution that they're implementing to address that problem is more timely for the current environment. And as a builder, I'm really excited about that. Clearly, I wish this wasn't the case, but you know, over my career, there was the dot-com recession. In fact, it's what pushed me into healthcare. I was one of those entrepreneurs focused in another space. I got displaced. My work situation changed, and I went to a marketplace that was very mature, large opportunity where I thought I could have a career path for a long time. Because you deal with company formation, I imagine that's one of the leading indicators of new company development. And so if you think back to, say, five years ago or even 10 years ago, and you take your entire client base what percentage of your clients were medical device and diagnostics, therapeutics, biotech, pharma, and digital health, healthcare IT? What was the breakdown? I think if you look back five years ago, it would be predominantly medtech, medical device, and therapeutics. Sprinkling of diagnostic tools types, but nothing on the digital side of things. Now, 
I think if you compare it, there is a, a significant decrease in terms of the number of device side clients. I think there are more of these quasi-digital slash device type approaches that are happening. It's definitely been a shift, and I think we'll see it even more. There will be more of, as you kind of described, the tech to healthcare migration, and that's going to bring something new. Interesting. Yeah, I can imagine that as well. Because Dorsey and in your practice, founders are coming to you at some point to start their company, do you envision that the time from founding to capital raise to commercialization to ultimately exit, I guess is defined as um, M&A transaction, a licensing of the IP or initial public offering. Do you think for these technology-driven companies, will the time to exit be shorter or be longer? I think that there is a, an opportunity for a very, very select group to get a shorter outcome, but for the majority of them, it would be longer. Uh, the reason why on the sh why there is that tiny, tiny opportunity, you know, you look at Zoom, and I know it's not an analogous thing, the availability of a particular solution that happens to just nail it dead on and that it becomes absolutely essential, that opportunity could exist for something out there. And I think you could have a home run winner that's a, on a very compressed timeline and it just completely is a viral outcome that will be a, a winner. Everything else, I think, as I was explaining about you know the difficulty in getting to the new normal that window of time i think is just basically added uh to a standard development cycle uh and i think the rest will take longer and i think you know things like when you think about it selling to a hospital in this mostly remote environment you know getting reps back into meeting doctors. Well, I just don't know how quickly and how easily that would take place in the new normal, you know, mm -hmm. this minimization of social contact over time. It's a different way of doing business that I don't think that will be a faster way. It might just take longer. Everything might just take longer. Productivity might decrease. I don't know. But I do think that there will be this divergence of timelines. You know, this past week, I received two pitches, both of them for products that would be considered medical devices. The beneficiary of the technology, the innovation was ultimately the patient, and they would all be regulated by the FDA, either class one or class two. The difference is the go-to-market strategy was direct to patient. That's primarily because the patient is buying this thing directly. Very interesting technologies, important innovations, but their go-to-market strategy is going to look more like what we see on Instagram than hire direct sales force, do training, surgeons try to navigate hospital approvals. And as interesting as, or as rather as different as that may be to the way MedTech is currently sold, if you look at areas of, of healthcare, such as aesthetics, certainly some of the really interesting things in dental, whether it be for teeth whitening, teeth straightening, that go-to-market strategy is very common. And it, what makes me think about what you said at the beginning in, in the context of the recession, the COVID-19 recession is, Companies right now, boards of directors, VC investors and founders, they're looking at their balance sheets. And when faced with the uncertainty of when will cases resume, when will revenue start to resemble normal, they're having to think hard and long about what are we gonna do with our cash? And that's a constraint. I'm feeling it personally in my role at Providence Medical Technology. What's refreshing, though, is I happen to have the opinion that the commercial model for med tech, you know, we're probably at the, uh, the later innings of that model. Whether you're the large strategics or you're the startup companies, everyone's running roughly the same playbook. The problem is, is nobody's growing 50% in med tech. Very few people. That cohort of companies is very small. And I would argue that the companies that are growing that fast with the traditional commercial model, there is some type of migration of site of service 
and an underlying DRG, APC, CPT code dynamic where the economics are what are driving that. And that's especially evident in a pattern that I look for in the small amount of angel investing I do is if a technology enables a type of physician specialty that currently can't participate in providing this service and the related CPT code or professional fees, if a technology breaks that constraint, number one, and allows a specialty to begin performing that surgery or treating that patient, cardiothoracic surgeons were displaced by interventional cardiologists with the invention of the stent and the angioplasty balloons. So when I see that pattern, there is likely going to be commercial success. I don't attribute that success, though, to the commercial model that we've all been implementing for so long. The other dynamic that actually could be present you know, post-COVID-19, if you can take a surgery out of the surgery center, bring it into the ambulatory, sorry, if you can take a surgery out of the hospital, and because of some feature of the technology, now practice that technique in the ambulatory surgery center where the end user, the physician, has some financial interest. And you can enable that physician to safely, effectively perform that technique, treat the patient as well or better, but also have some type of financial incentive uh, at the facility level that works. And there's a couple of exits that you and I both know about recently where it wasn't the commercial model that led to the growth and ultimately the M&A event, it really was the economic situation. I wanna to go to the next question. If you think about your practice at Dorsey, how would you segment your customers? The way we think about it is we take founders through a, a journey of starting a business you know, and taking it forward to its logical steps and hopefully to a successful conclusion such that they achieve both hopefully financial success and clinical success. Uh, that's big hope that we have. And, you know, along the way, there are various steps that grow the company that they found and they go into different stages as life goes on. So when you look at a founder or a, a few founders who get together and they start a company at that very day zero stage, that company looked very different uh, from a company that had raised venture capital dollars. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we treat those segments slightly differently. Uh, they need different things and they have different, different uh, demand. And as you go on and when you, get regulatory clearance and your commercial that's a whole different world too so we have kind of different founding pre-commercial commercial type you know i think segments that we look at uh and the needs are different at at different juncture and probably each of those are its own kind of session someday uh for your audience uh it's it's they are very different animals when we met evan how many years into your practice at Dorsey were you, and, and how many years into practicing law at all? At that time, I was probably 10 years into the legal practice uh, and probably a few years into Dorsey. I still had a lot more hair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and that was a while back. And you've been with the Providence journey for a long time, and you've seen the different phases of the company. From the beginning, if you remember, it was we met at a Starbucks, I believe. It was uh, it was there was no office, there was nothing for you, right? It was just a pitch book and and the story. Uh, and then and then you were very diligent. You you developed the idea some more. Uh, and uh, and then you raise money, and then you entered into that next phase. And then, of course, you know the product got developed, and then you have and you know a further grow of the business, and now the next next phase. So you've experienced each of those stages, and I think they probably felt different. I assume I don't know if you had a perspective about going through the stages of life, if you would, in that founder's journey. If you think back, that was 2000, I don't want to say it was 2008. And, you know, since then, you've helped me start 
extremities focused company, class one device, trying to fix carpal tunnel. We developed a device that treated 3,000 patients, great IP. It was excellent counsel and advice. Ultimately, the company failed because of the unit economics. You know, it was a real lesson we learned, and we were trying to sell a $1,000 solution into a market where there was really only about $1,000 of facility reimbursement. We also were a little early on ultrasound-guided surgery. However, the loyalty and trust that you built with me through that process, it's interesting as a founder, it's not just when things are working or when you close the round or you get the FDA clearance and you commercialize and you're doing a big contract or something where you really need your attorney to advise you is in the bad days. And when you give me the advice that, Jeff, I'm not sure it's such a great idea that you personally guarantee a million dollar loan with Wells Fargo. As your attorney, that's probably a lot of risk and you should consider that carefully. And of course I did it anyway. And then you helped me figure out a way to uh, pay it off. And then fast forward to starting our incubator Prospect Health and then Column and then helping us through the transaction of selling that to another business and the companies that came after that. There's been a lot, but if you think back to that first meeting in, you know, in that Starbucks in Oakland, what pattern was evident in, in me as a founder, whether it be crazy, too much energy, totally clueless and naive, <laughs> whatever it was, how do you decide when you meet with a founder that this guy or gal, this is somebody that I should take an interest in and, and help them along the way? I think the, the, the common theme of folks who get past that first stage, uh, such as yourself, you've had various things that get past the initial ideation phase. The, uh, the energy level is just, you know, there's, there's a clear separation uh, between the founders who are passionate and energetic about what they're doing, and then there is the other category, which is just it's, it's a thing that I'm working on, kind of, and mm -hmm. you know, it's just not there. Um, I think with that, it's it's there is a clear divide already that you can tell, uh, and I think it's going to show up when you pitch for money, when you. Uh, interact with potential uh, other collaborators. It's it's the passion and the energy is 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 a significant difference. And I know you, Jeff. You 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 put a lot into anything that you do. So it's definitely it's 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 there. Uh, and a lot of a lot of other folks they don't have that. Um, I get really excited when I see uh, and interact with people like yourself who have that energy. Um, and it's often a good early indicator of potential success. Um, and so if you can't get excited about whatever it is, it's probably something that you should think about a little bit, some, a little bit more. Well, so <laughs> what I think especially is in this, yeah, no, no doubt. What I think is interesting, especially on the heels of the last episode with an, a VC is, you know, the, the venture capitalist, it's really difficult to go out and raise a fund. Dave Cash from Medvest, he described that on the last episode. And, you know, he goes out, he's trying to find these investors that are willing to give a portion of their investable capital to him to manage so that he can make good decisions. And Dave did a great job talking about how he likes to help founders, um, you know, support them along the way, which is very similar to what you're describing in, in your practice. The difference is, as a VC, you're being paid a management fee some percentage on the fund you just raised. And so you can meet with a hundred founders, you can meet with five founders, but ultimately the form of compensation is the management fee and a percentage of the carry, or rather the, when, when the fund returns a profit, the VC gets a portion of that. And so in that case, the VC has to be very careful of how she allocates her time because ultimately they need to deliver a return, not only because that's the, the deal with the investor, but it's also how they get compensated. What's different and what I think is really interesting and possibly underappreciated is as an attorney, you're a partner, co-chair, big practice in the firm, and your time is billed. And the way I understand it as a law firm, there's an expectation, and I'm not speaking specifically to Dorsey, but attorneys have to bill a certain number of hours. And so as a partner, when you think about 
the hours that you could build for the work that you already have. When you're going to go out and meet some founder that you've never met, not even sure if what he or she is doing is remotely viable, you're actually making a pretty big investment. When you then make the decision to say, all right, I'm going to help this company organize, create a corporation. When that engagement letter is signed, Dorsey and Whitney is allowing you to go ahead and start billing your time. And then many of those companies are never going to be able to pay those invoices unless they're able to raise capital in that first financing, seed round, convertible note. And so it's what I think is really interesting. And, and I don't think attorneys get enough credit for is when you decide to bill 5, 10, 20, 30 hours to help a founder put together their first financing, you're really risking your time and the firm's you know, ability to collect. And if you think back again to when we met, is your bar higher now because of how busy and successful you've been? Or do you still approach it the same way? Uh, I don't think that the approach is um, too different now than before. We still need to uh, judiciously spend time on things that we think will pan out, uh, although we are obviously not as good as a venture capitalist. I would otherwise do that. Uh, but choice is there as far as what you spend time on. And you, know, you look at different prospective clients as basically opportunities that hopefully they will move through the different stages of a company's life and have an exit transaction. And you know, as you noted, we fill our time and we get paid by the hour. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the companies that will have a longer life or a, a, a future uh, are obviously more desirable. Uh, and so, you know, if you basically spend all your time on uh, a bunch of companies that won't go anywhere, that's going to be a huge problem because you will not have a pipeline. Uh, and, you know, the firm's resources would be tied up on things that are you know, less attractive. Uh, and, you know, I have partners within our firm. They do things that are different. Uh, you know, for instance, we have, you know, litigation partners that don't necessarily need to go and talk to different companies because a case happens and then then it happens, right? And then you have to spend illegal dollars. Um, so there's less quote unquote prospecting that they have to do. So if I don't prospect appropriately, I'm hurting my partners effectively. Uh, and so, you know, it's important that, you know, I look at things with at least a, a fair view of, you know, um, what the potential outcome would be. I think this is a good point to just give some perspective from the client side about Dorsey. When Providence started having some success in raising capital, you know, we had access to all the great firms of which Dorsey's, you know, really high on that list. As a founder and as a CEO who's making that decision, Dorsey's history and roots are all in healthcare. And so the firm, yeah, works with med tech startups and life science startups, but it also in the client base includes some of the largest insurance companies in healthcare. Clients include some of the biggest hospital IDN systems. And because of their med tech client base being, you know, small companies like Providence and also the large strategics with also a big practice in venture capital as the buyer and ultimately, you know, choosing the service, aside from it being Evan, who I would follow to any firm, what Evan just described with his litigation partner is Dorsey really does have the full service. And so if we have a complicated regulatory matter that has to do, you know, with something where a firm really has to understand healthcare and the specifics of that business that we're in, that's Dorsey. And so that's really worked well for us. And, you know, there are a number of firms, a small number that have that breadth specifically within healthcare. But for healthcare founders, when you think about the law firm and ultimately the partner who is going to be your primary contact, my personal opinion, and it's just that, is number one, be comfortable with the partner, the associate, your primary contact, and make sure that attorney and you have a good fit. And, and a good fit is defined as it's easy to communicate. And when things are good or bad, they're one of the people you want to call because that is the person you're going to call. And you, you want to make sure you enjoy making that call. 
The second thing is, and this is unique to Evan, founders, we get into all sorts of situations. And the quality that I look for, you know, Evan talked about energy and passion that he's looking for in founders. What I look for in attorneys is creativity and resourcefulness. Like medicine, like accounting, law, which I am not skilled in or have any credibility in speaking about, it's a profession. And also like medicine, it's based on precedent, there's laws, and so you really have to have a base understanding of the profession. However, the additional value add is the creativity. And the number of situations that I've gotten into where Evan's one understanding of the law, not just where the law is today, but where it's likely going, being able to put that in context of whatever situation I was in, and then synthesize this information and come up with something really creative that worked for all the stakeholders that is what you're paying for in an attorney. And when selecting a partner, my suggestion is, of course, you should research the firm. Make sure that they have great rankings and you know it's a brand that people know. But ultimately, the individual that's leading the team of resources at the firm, you want to make sure that person cares about you, is someone that you get along with, but above all, is creative in how they apply the law to your specific situation because that could have a major impact on the outcome of your company. We're getting a little on in time, so what I wanna start with next is, if you think about when you started your legal practice, even pre-Dorsey, and then the decision to join Dorsey and ultimately become a partner, what was the problem you really wanted to tackle? And what was the thing that motivated you the most and why do you think you were the right person for that problem? I wanted to have a niche with you know, developing uh, fast-growing uh, healthcare companies. And I uh, was in the 2000.com bubble recession, actually, uh, at the time. And I was, you know, originally a tech side kind of guy. Uh, I have a computer engineering degree. And then with that particular recession, got pushed into healthcare by accident in some way. That was where things were going on. And I saw how the companies are able to help patients. It was, you know, ultimately the most important thing, which is having good health. And, um, and that was very empowering and, and exciting. And so, you know, I really, really wanted to find companies and help, you know, those ideas uh, come along so that they can help people. So it's a little bit better feeling for at least us lawyers uh, to have companies that help people than just companies that make a lot of money. Uh, hopefully you can do both. Um, and so that became a basically a core theme of why I do what, what I do. Um, and so it's, it's been very, very good and very, very satisfying. It reminds me of a quote, you know, this was coming out of, I think it was the 2000, maybe coming out of the dot-com correction. <laughs> and the quote was, the greatest minds of our generations are applying their intellect to get people to click on ads. You know? <laughs> and, and listen, like that had to happen because all those technologies and business models came out of the ad-driven you know, search business. It's enabled a lot of additional innovation. But I do think for founders that are They've been doing research in machine learning or taking machine learning to the next level to actual some semblance of real artificial intelligence or people that like, you know, genetics and think that they could do genetic sequencing or personalized medicine. You know, that to me is what's really exciting when bright people, computer engineering background, smart enough and disciplined enough to learn law and, you know, be able to practice law. When people start realizing not only can they make a very good living in healthcare, like they could in any other industry, but the knock-on effect, and hopefully, which is the case in your situation, it really becomes the why. Because we spend a lot of times on our careers, and we all have things that we need to do, families, responsibilities, obligations, and there's a reason we work. But when we can look at our time, you know, whether it be one, two, 10, 30, 40 years, and look back on our careers, and in your case, Evan, hundreds of companies that you provided advice and counsel to, if every one of those, every one of those companies had only helped a thousand patients, 
you know, you're talking about hundreds of thousands, up to a million people that your skill, your abilities really affected their lives. And that, that to me, that's what it's all about. And that's why healthcare is where I'm going to stay. So let's move on to the second session. And I just want to learn a little bit more about you. And we don't have to, you know, this isn't psychotherapy, but <laughs> where were you born? Brothers, sisters, you know, tell us about your early childhood and really leading up to becoming the legal powerhouse that you are today. So, uh, let's see. I was born in Hong Kong, which is, uh, you know, a little different. So, uh, and then I uh, grew up there uh, for, you know, a good number of years. I think I was probably 13, 14 when I left. And I actually went to England for a little while for uh, school. And then I went over to Atlanta uh, at Georgia Tech for uh, computer engineering. So, um, and then law school in Virginia. And I think what was, I think in hindsight, interesting is that all of these experiences all over the world kind of gives you a little bit um, of a different uh, or, or maybe some kind of ability to, to perceive you know, how people behave and, and, and seeing the room a little bit differently. It's, it's been useful and it's hard to quantify and that's just been interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I've been all around the world effectively, uh, you know, and, you know, my, uh, I have a sister, my family, uh, they're no longer in Hong Kong, uh, but, uh, but it's been, uh, it's been an interesting journey around the world, if you would. Uh, and we live now here in Palo Alto, uh, which is fantastic. It's a great place to be. Well, we talked about this years ago, but, you know, I did a semester abroad in Hong Kong and intern for an investment bank. My impression of Hong Kong is just like, what an amazing hub of capitalism. So much trade, you have people from all over the world. It really was one of the first truly cosmopolitan global you know, capitalist cities. And there's also a lot of diversity where you have people from different parts of the world and clearly a really strong and proud and, and vibrant Chinese culture but also a degree of independence that I think is something to be celebrated. If you think about going from being born to all the way up to being a teenager, what was the transition like from Hong Kong to London? Uh, it, was, it was interesting. It was uh, something that I, I actually, I wanted to be away and I wanted to, to pursue sort of a way of life that was, I was running it kind of thing. Um, and so it, there wasn't the usual shock or homesickness or whatever it is. It was just an adventure. It was very cool and empowering. I remember uh, going up to, you know, open my own bank account, just myself. Uh, and I think I was like 14. That was super cool. And then you get the little card and you're like, oh, wow, this was fun. Um, so it was, it was just a kind of a hugely empowering journey, if you would. Um, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't send any of my kids to do that. It seems <laughs> crazy now in hindsight. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's just, it's just, it was a very enjoyable journey around the world, if you would. Uh, which I don't even know now how we're going to ever do that. Uh, it's hard to imagine. You go from London, which, I mean, it's one of the greatest cities, in, and, you know, Hong Kong, global city, London, global city, cosmopolitan, yep. diverse culture, tradition, history. Tell me about the transition from London to Georgia. <laughs> it's a different, uh, different type of uh, universe. Um, I mean, Atlanta was a, was a uh, excellent, excellent metro area it's you know obviously smaller than than the previous uh locations uh but you know i think it was you know it was college good 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 learning environment it was sort of like a college town within a metro area uh so you you actually had access to a lot of things um you know and uh and it was it was also i think uh, an important but uh but it was a good time and, you know, learned a, a ton, met a ton of great people. Uh, and, you know, 
it's uh it was it was yeah it was a good time not 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 at all unhappy about that well so to to make the decision to study you know computer engineering in the 90s that was that was very forward thinking how did you know that that was an area you wanted to pursue always i was always playing video games at the time before <laughs> before college so uh it was sort of just a natural natural thing you know playing on it and okay let's go do something about it right so um that that was why uh ultimately obviously that's not where everything ended up but uh, but it was it was a uh, it it made sense at the time got it so walk us through the decision process where You've got this degree, Georgia Tech, one of the best engineering schools in the country, and you decide, you know what, I'm going to apply to law school. So, How did you make that decision? Yeah, so actually the, the story was uh, that, uh, you know, that there was a little bit of an economic uh, change in terms of just, you know, 97, 98, it was, it was unclear the dot-com boom was happening i didn't know if that's what i wanted to do so i actually just made a conscious decision to delay coming into the workforce and was like okay let's go to law it seemed like it was a it was an enjoyable thing to do it wasn't sort of a an explicit design oh i wanted to grow up to be a lawyer kind of thing so it was it was a delay uh of entry <laughs> into the real world which was actually very enjoyable three years um so uh yeah it, it was uh it was only time later well it's interesting that reminds me an earlier guest dr bruce mccormick we talked about the same t concept and when he was at brown you know he liked life sciences he was a natural interest his father was a dentist and the way he described it is that he knew going to med school would be a platform and so he could do this you know, get a medical degree, and at the very least, it would broaden his exposure of opportunities. And so it sounds like, you know, uncertain about the job market, who knows where computers are going to go, why not learn to practice law? And so you applied all these law schools, you get the letter, University of Virginia, Charlottesville, maybe the most beautiful campus in the United States. What was it like to get that letter? And Tell us a little about those three years at UVA. Uh, so it was it was uh, it was actually not the most straightforward story. Actually, uh, it was uh, it was a uh, you know I don't think I got the letter until really really late, and so it was sort of between that or somewhere else. Uh, and uh, you know it was it was I I just remember. Um, the schedule being extremely compressed and then showing up to Charlottesville by, you know, just driving up from Atlanta. It was like, okay, this it is completely unprepared. Um, and uh, it was, it was, it was the first time really the uh, big small town college campus feel. Right. Um, and it was just a very, you know, it, it's an environment where the law school was a very kind of on its own standalone universe. So you're really locked down and focused. Um, it was it was fun. Um, yeah, no no complaints. And I think I I I echo that whole platform remark, if you would. Um, you know, it was one of those where um, you know do this, and then there are still many options thereafter. So it wasn't necessarily by design that you know, hey, go do this. It was there are many things you could do. So. Absolutely. Yeah, you think about your career when you're in your 20s, you're in the gathering stage. So whether you decide that you're going to go practice medicine or, or learn, learn medicine, learn law, become a CPA and learn accounting, maybe do sales, be a trader. It's not like it's the last stop of your career. And I think, you know, as a father, when I when I talk to my boys, you have to take the next step. And whatever you do, you know, and then it was the advice given to me is you got to, you got to be all in. You have to learn, meet people, gain experience, but you never stop thinking to the future of where everything is heading. 
And so I have to ask, and then we'll move on to the next section. At 13 years old, I mean, that's like a kid. You move to one of the biggest cities in the world on your own to continue your studies. It was invigorating. You were independent. You're all of a sudden out on your own. You're tackling a lot of challenges as a, you know, as a young man. You then follow that by moving to the United States, Atlanta, Charlottesville. So as a parent, and for any parents that are listening or people that would like to be a parent one day, how should we all think about that when we make decisions to protect our kids? Because I think as a father, I want my kids to be safe. But how do we balance that need for them to be safe with letting them fly off to London at 13 and go become Evan Ng? I think uh, at least I want to provide information uh, about sort of whatever it is uh, whether it's something that I know or whether it's something we can get information on. And so then when an issue comes up or when a need comes up um, from your kid, uh, that, you know, the information's there and ultimately they may not choose the path that you want to prescribe for them, but at least then they, they, they choose it with some baseline information that is fair and, and available. Uh, I think it's, it's probably more difficult to impose on kids or teens or whatever have you these days anyways. So, you know, you just fairly present the choices uh, and see what happens. I think anything else is going to be too difficult these days. Well said. All right. Thanks, Evan. Well, so hey, to wrap up, we're going to go to the vault. The first question I want to ask is, what is something you read, watched, or heard, really any format, in the last year that had a significant impact on how you view the world? How has it changed the way you approach life or business? Um, I think this was within the last year because I didn't catch on to this until uh, within the last year. It's uh, Bad Blood uh, by John Kerry. So... uh, you know, it's, it's, and I think this is public, um, you know, our firm is involved with the uh, Theranos estate, you know, as, uh, you know, when a company winds down, there are also legal matters to deal with. Uh, and so that kind of caught my attention and, and, you know, wanting to read up more about it. Uh, and what is interesting to me after going through the book, and I think I saw snippets of, of uh, the documentaries uh, that are out, is that, you know, how easy that could have happened with, you know, any particular client, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit shocking and, uh, and scary to see um, how it actually happened. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, what that has caused is sort of just a little bit more skepticism as we hear about new uh, opportunities. And, and, you know, maybe that's not a great thing, because, you know, it's, it's, uh, that doubt is not exactly uh, welcomed in some corners. But I think a little healthy amount of skepticism about the next great thing is probably a good thing um, after seeing what had transpired. Next question. Throughout your life, other than your parents, who is someone, could be a teacher, mentor, coach, partner, friend, you name it, but this person saw your potential, took an interest in your development, and provided consistent encouragement throughout your career? Yeah, there's this... uh old lawyer in uh in, in dorsey whom i met you know when i first joined the firm uh sat down in his office uh his name is ken cutler uh he was the uh then chair of our emerging company practice in minneapolis um and he had you know i had not come run across uh the table from him uh at the time but he represented all these great med tech companies out of the Twin Cities. Uh, and 
you know, I went into his office, uh, you know, sat down, chatted about the practices. Um, he had all the cool tools, uh, you know, that from the clients displayed in the back. Um, it was just very impressive. And then over the years, he's, you know, really provided great guidance. And, you know, we do roughly the same things. And he's since retired, but, you know, he's been uh, particularly great. And, you know, when I joined Dorsey, I was, not yet a partner and you know he was a big contributor to sort of my uh advancement so that was that was a big thing great so since starting your practice at dorsey what is the biggest new healthcare problem that you've seen and you see it over and over again and can't stop thinking about it and believe it needs to be solved and it doesn't have to be therapeutic it could be anything you know, I think, uh, you know, this is, this is where I'm, this is not necessarily the biggest problem. Uh, this is a completely selfish uh, uh, thing. So uh, my son has a, uh, an allergy to peanuts and it's about, you know, it's getting solved. There is new uh, approval uh, coming for a, you know, for the, uh, the OIP uh, micro dosing and, and, and treatment protocol. But, uh, you know, I don't know how it came about. I have no idea about the cause. It's just a thing that's pervasive and affecting us, you know, on a continuous basis. And, you know, I have a personal hope that someday that's completely gone. Um, but, you know, other than that, hopefully we get out of this COVID universe, right? So that's, that's a whole different thing, but you know, those are, those are ones that are immediately coming to mind. Um, you know, but I see, you know, on the other end of it, I see clients with really, really exciting stuff that I can't wait, uh, for, for, uh, the, uh, the uh, product to come out and hopefully change the way things are done. Um, you know, your company at Providence, lots of cool stuff, but you know, we have a few others, um, you know, like you mentioned, uh, machine learning based things that are very, very exciting and interesting. Um, you know, we have people who are on the verge of, you know, predicting uh, treatment paths for different, uh, more complicated diseases that, you know, historically, there just hadn't been uh, that attention. Very exciting stuff and just very, very, uh, very hopeful that some of those things work out. Excellent. Thank you. What software tool or business service do you use almost every day and you can't imagine living without? So I think the, the best description would be this, this list of things that we use. Like it's probably not too different from your day to day. Uh, so it's the usual, it's the zoom. It's uh, it's, you know, the usual outlook slash, you know, office suite. Uh, we use something called CapShare, uh, which is a uh, capitalization management tool uh, for all of our clients. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, we maintain clients' kind of stock and option data on that. Uh, and so that's a very frequent, but probably not so known item. Uh, and then nowadays it's, it's, you know, Zoom and the like for the rest of it. So... Um, it's, it's not super technologically advanced, Jeff, uh, to practice law, but it's okay. I get it. All right. Last question. Mm -hmm. What is your biggest unmet need at Dorsey? Um, I think we really need, uh, more investors to jump in. Uh, onto the early stage of medtech uh, and life sciences uh, in general, uh, it's a it's always difficult to to get that uh, step uh, out of the way for 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 founders. Um, you know, we know quite a few uh, early stage investors, but they're just there are never enough of them. Uh, you know, and this upcoming new wave, if you would, right, that we've talked about and companies getting started, there's going to be a tremendous need for capital. Uh, and, 
you know, what, what we have seen in sort of the downturn, down environment historically is that in the beginning of the downturn, you have capital uh, going towards kind of existing solutions, existing companies to bolster kind of their, their status uh, and, and financial standing. Uh, and so then you don't see a lot of capital coming into the space in the early days, uh, early stage. Uh, and also, you also don't see the exits. So the, the, that capital that wants to deliver, that, that wants to get a financial return, they're not coming yet. Right. So there's typically a gap in, in, in the down economy, if you would. Uh, and so this is going to be the, the, one of the more significant challenges over the next you know, 18, 24 months, I think. Um, and, uh, and hopefully, uh, there are people who are just, you know, not plainly motivated by a financial return, but also motivated by, you know, having that double bottom line of, of getting the financial return and helping potential patients. And I think that would be, that would be a, a good place for people to, to try and put their money. Well, folks, you heard it here. Bad blood creates some additional skepticism. Nice balance. Ken Cutler, senior partner at Dorsey & Whitney, always had your back and was a mentor. Evan would really like to see peanut allergies solved, not just for his son, but for everyone. Couldn't live without Zoom and CapShare to manage cap tables. And finally, biggest unmet need in his practice at Dorsey, we need more early stage investors in life science and ultimately more exits. Well, Evan, can't thank you enough for being a guest on Unmet Need. Thanks, Jeff.